Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Haunted Houses A haunted house, by definition, is a house, building, or dwelling that is often perceived to be inhabited by disembodied spirits of the dead. Haunted houses are so ingrained into our culture that they're almost treated like a joke. Every year, around the middle of September, or the beginning of August if you live in Florida for some reason, that's a weird state, people, young and old alike, head out in droves to experience the thousands of haunted houses I'm doing air quotes right now. I understand you can't see me. We decorate our houses to be the scariest on the block, and when a new movie comes out, we run to the theaters. Movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, well, that's really not about a house. It kind of encompasses the entire neighborhood. Also, Dreams. Friday the 13th, well, it's really about a camp. I think eventually made it to space. The Amityville Horror, that was about a house. And shows like The Haunting of Hill House and American Horror Story, those are both pop culture juggernauts. It's even gotten to the point that it's been written into law. In the case of Stamvosky v. Ackley, I'm probably butchering those names, commonly known as the Ghostbusters ruling, the New York Supreme Court legally allowed the seller of their home that is located in Nyack, New York, to list their house as haunted. And under the same ruling, no one could be tricked into buying a haunted house. This was 1991. Not 1791, when doctors would make house calls to diagnose your epilepsy with ghosts and then tell you the only cure for it was cocaine. We've come a long way. It's just as prevalent in other parts of the world as well. In Hong Kong, where superstition is rampant, homes that are considered to be haunted go for 15-20% to lower than market value. There's even a website where listings of haunted houses can be found. Squarefoot.com.hk for those of you that are interested. New York's Greenwich Village has some of the most desirable real estate in all of the world, save for one building at 14 West 10th Street. Prior to the Civil War, the streets around Washington Square were among the most fashionable in the city. Wealthy New Yorkers moved into wide brownstone residences filled with costly furniture from shops like Henry Bettler or Joseph Meeks. Located between 6th and Park Avenue, 
number 14 was a stylish Greek revival home built towards the end of the 1850s. Constructed with beautiful red brick and brownstone trim over an English basement, it was exceptionally wide and spacious. Here, throughout the turbulent war years, women in flowing Victorian dresses and men in starch collars were entertained beneath whale oil chandeliers. Hmm, sounds pretty fancy. The list of wealthy owners of number 14 West 10th is as long as my arm. Captains of industry, entertainers, and politicians all took up residency there. It was in 1900, however, that the house drew the attention of the press and the curious when the author Samuel Clemens took up residency with his family. The relatively quiet tradition of number 14, however, was jolted in 1987 when resident and prominent New York criminal defense attorney Joel Steinberg beat to death his six-year-old adopted daughter, Jessica, inside of the house. The subsequent discovery of his repeated physical abuse to both the sad-faced little girl and Steinberg's common-law wife shocked the city. Some digging was done on number 14 West 10th at that time, and it was discovered that some 22 people were killed inside those walls. It has earned the moniker the Death House. Despite its history, it held a special place in some old inhabitants' hearts. Samuel Clemens, or how most of us know him as Mark Twain, said that number 14 was his favorite place he ever lived. Rumor has it, he still pops by for an occasional visit. New Haven, Connecticut In the summer of 1839, Leonard Pardee and his wife Sarah Burns welcomed their beautiful baby girl into the world. Sarah Lockwood Pardee was the fifth of seven children born to Leonard and Sarah. Sounds like old Sarah Burns and Leo didn't have enough time to put their pants back on, eh? Good for them. At the time of Sarah's birth, the parties were a respectable upper-middle-class family. Her father Leonard was a joiner by trade whose shrewd business sense found him moving up the ladder of polite society as a successful carriage manufacturer. During the Civil War, he made an absolute fortune supplying ambulances to the Union Army. Sarah was an extraordinary young woman. By the age of 12, Sarah was already fluent in French, Spanish, Italian, and Latin. It was when she attended Yale University, known simply as Yale College back then, that Sarah first learned about the occult. From its inception, Yale was a hub of progressive Freemasonic Rosicrucian thinking. For those of you unfamiliar with those words I probably butchered, Rosicrucianism was a spiritual movement that popped up in Europe in the early 17th century. The mysterious doctrine of the order is built on an esoteric truths of the ancient past, which concealed from the average man provide insights into nature, the physical universe, and the spiritual realm. The manifestos do not elaborate extensively on the matter, but they clearly combine references to Kabbalah, Christian mysticism, and alchemy. This ain't your mama's religion. This is religion. After dark. It was during her time at Yale that Sarah met her soon-to-be husband, William. According to historical documents, both Sarah and William's families were well acquainted, both being members of the New Haven elite. Sarah coming from a successful carriage manufacturer and William's father founding a successful clothing company, both Sarah and William's sister Annie were members of the Young Ladies Collegiate Institute, Yale's only female scholastic institution. In 1862, the pair were married. It wasn't until 1866 when William's father, Oliver Fisher Winchester, decided to get out of the clothing business and channel his efforts into a firearms manufacturing venture that evolved into the famous Winchester Repeating Arms Company. It was around that time that things started to take a turn for Sarah. Shortly after the formation of the company, Sarah and William welcomed their first and only child into the world. On June 15, 1866, Annie Party Winchester was born. And six weeks later, on July 25th, Annie died. The cause of death was marismus. Marismus is a form of malnutrition, and in the 1860s it wasn't all that uncommon. But it was for the extremely wealthy. After that, Sarah slowly started disconnecting from everyone around her. 
She also started claiming she was getting visits from spirits. Getting visits constantly. In December 1880, Sarah lost her father-in-law Oliver, and then in March 1881, she lost her husband William. After William's death, Sarah inherited a little more than $20 million, equivalent to $543 million today. She also received nearly 50% ownership of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, giving her an income of roughly $1,000 a day. That's equivalent to $26,000 in today's money. That's some real how-you-doing cash. A trip to Boston after her husband's death was what put Sarah on a path that ended up being her life's work. While in Boston, she visited a medium who told her things that it wasn't possible for anyone else to know. She told her the disease that killed her daughter. She told her her husband died of pulmonary tuberculosis, something that she and only William's doctors knew. She also told her that she was channeling William, and he had a message for her, that she should leave their home in New Haven and travel west, where she must use all of her wealth to continuously build a home, a home for herself and the spirits. The spirits would never stop visiting her, and she has to build a place for them because it's their fault. You see, the spirits had a special connection to her family. They were all the people who had fallen victim to Winchester rifles. In 1884, she purchased an unfinished farmhouse in Santa Clara Valley, California, and began building her home. Carpenters were hired and worked on the house day and night until it became a seven-story mansion. She did not use an architect and added onto the building in a haphazard fashion. So the home contains numerous oddities, such as doors and stairs that go nowhere, windows overlooking other rooms, and stairs with odd-sized risers. The house received substantial damage in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and it was decided to stop building up and start building out. The house was changed from seven stories to only four. There are roughly 161 rooms, including 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms, as well as 47 fireplaces, over 10,000 windows, 17 chimneys, two basement levels, and three elevators. Construction continued constantly, seven days a week, 365 days a year, right up until Sarah's death in 1922. When Winchester died, all of her possessions, apart from the house, were bequeathed to her niece and personal secretary. Her niece then took everything she wanted and sold the rest in a private auction. It supposedly took six trucks working eight hours a day for six weeks to remove all of the furniture from her home. Miss Winchester made no mention of the mansion in her will and appraisers considered the house worthless due to the damage caused by the earthquake, the unfinished design, and the impractical nature of its construction. It was sold at an auction to a local investor at just over $135,000, and subsequently leased for 10 years to John and Mamie Brown, who eventually purchased the home. In 1923, five months after Winchester's death, the house was open to the public, with Mamie Brown serving as the first tour guide. It is said that the Winchester house was Walt Disney's inspiration for the haunted mansion at the Disney parks. Today, the home is owned by Winchester Investments, LLC, a privately held company representing the descendants of John and Mamie Brown. The home retains unique touches that reflect Mrs. Winchester's beliefs of her reported preoccupation with warding off malevolent spirits. These spirits are said to have directly inspired her as to the way her home should be built. The number 13 and spiderweb motifs, which carried spiritual significance for her, occur throughout the house. Tour guides at the now-famous Winchester Mystery House often tell stories of moving objects and talking in rooms that are completely empty. You can even catch Sarah strolling the hallways every now and again. In 2017, the Winchester Mystery House debuted its first daytime tour in 20 years, the Explore More Tour. This tour takes guests to rooms never open to the public and explores the rooms left unfinished at the time of Sarah Winchester's death. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history. 
unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Burrowville, Rhode Island. In 1959, the Dawson family that was made up of Father Ted, Mother Pam, son Richie, age 10, and daughter Beverly, age 14, made the move from Providence to the sleepy town when Ted received an offer to teach at Passaquig Middle School. They were your typical 50s family. Pam spent her days sewing, and she was a prominent member of the Rhode Island Sewing Club, which didn't have a charter up in Burrowville, but she was given the okay to start one up after they left Providence. Pam was a near celebrity in that circle, because one of her patterns ended up being published in the Simplicity Sewing Book, distributed quarterly by Simplicity Pattern Company Incorporated. Ted, on top of being one hell of a bowler, was a member of the Rhode Island Cultivation Society, and he was certain that he can grow his blue ribbon winning hydrangeas in the new garden that made him the envy of every block down in Providence. He was also an avid hunter, and member of the Winchester Gun Club. The woods up in northern Rhode Island were just bursting with wild game, and he couldn't wait to get to it. Richie and Beverly were your average kids. Richie spent his time doing what most 10-year-old boys do, annoying their older siblings. He would run around the driveway pushing a hula hoop, shouting at the top of his lungs, Hoop tag! Hoop tag, you guys! You guys want to play? Hoop tag! To no one in particular. When he was inside, he was always begging the family to play Snakes and Ladders or Ludo. Beverly, or Bev as she was insisting on being called now, was your typical teenage girl. She enjoyed listening to that dreadful rock and roller music, as her mother used to put it mostly at unreasonable volumes on her parents' record player. She was good in school, didn't sneak out at night, an all-around good girl. I mean, sure, as she was getting older, she had started to become a little more withdrawn from partaking in family activities, but she was a teenager now. She didn't want to be a square. But she was also withdrawing from friends. Yeah, there were nights where Bev would be up all night, pacing the halls of the house, sitting downstairs in the dark. Sometimes, when her mom and dad would go down to the kitchen to get a glass of water in the middle of the night, Beverly would just be sitting in a chair at the kitchen table, and she would give them a wicked fright. Some days she would sleep well into the afternoon. It was summertime. Let her rest. She has a big year coming up, entering a new school, making new friends. She would probably start showing interest in boys. That's a lot on a young girl's mind. She was a teenager. Teenagers were weird. It was in August of 1959 that things changed for the Dawson family. The new house they acquired, by pure luck as Ted had put it, was an old Victorian-style home. Not uncommon for that region of New England. What was uncommon was the size. And the price! 
My God, it was an absolute steal at just over $11,000. $1,500 less than what they sold their home in Providence for. Also, there were no contingencies. The house was vacant, move-in ready, and plenty of room for the whole family. It even had a finished basement that Ted planned on making his trophy room for all the bucks he's going to land this fall. He was already keeping his rifles down there. And one of his sitting chairs. He could smoke his pipe and no one would complain about the smell. That was going to be his domain. King of the castle. Pam can have the parlor and the kitchen. The kids can have the rest of the house. On one hot August night, Beverly was experiencing one of her bouts with insomnia. At a little after midnight, she decided she would take a shower to cool off a bit and try to break the boredom. Setting the water to a cool and comfortable temperature, she stepped in, pulled the curtain closed behind her, and began going through the motions. An uneasy feeling began to fall over Beverly, like somebody was standing behind the curtain. Of course, this came over her just as she was washing her hair, and the soapy suds were now running into her eyes. From behind the curtain, she could hear something. Humming? Humming a familiar tune. That was Little Bitty Pretty One by Thurston Harris, a record that she had played often in the house. It was one of her favorites. Struggling to wipe her eyes free with soap, she started frantically asking, Richie, is that you? This isn't funny. The humming stopped, and words followed. In a hoarse, choked voice, Little bitty pretty one, come and talk to me. Lovey-dovey, lovey one, come sit down on my knee. Beverly was now in an absolute panic, her head directly under the water, eyes stinging and blurred, trying, begging to be able to see who was doing this. All she was able to make out through the red slits of her eyes was a silhouette of a person growing in height from behind the curtain. Just before it reached out for the curtain and pulled it back, Beverly let out a terrified scream, and while she was scrambling back to get away, she slipped and hit her head on the tub. When she came to, both her parents and two EMS workers were standing over her body. She was on a stretcher being loaded into an ambulance. The doctors gave Bev a thorough check and determined she sustained a minor concussion in her slip and that the voice she heard was nothing more than the mind playing tricks on her due to her lack of sleep lately. She was given strict orders to get plenty of bed rest, lay off the TV and the records, and take aspirin for any headaches. The next few days came and went without any issue. Beverly spent most of her time resting in bed comfortably with her mother, who was a nervous wreck about all of this, waiting on her hand and foot. Her dad went out and got her a beautiful ceramic nightlight of a blue jay, and as many back issues of Teen Magazine as he can get his hands on. Beverly was still having trouble sleeping, and he wanted to give her something to keep her occupied at night. Her brother Richie even camped out on her bedroom floor one night in his teepee to keep her company. Bev was on the mend, and with school starting in a few weeks, she was eager to try and get this little episode behind her. She still got the willies anytime she went into that bathroom, and usually ended up using the bathroom downstairs. She was afraid of it. Now normally, the bathroom isn't the room of your house that you're scared of, unless it's the day after a night of Taco Bell. Most of the time, those fears are reserved for the basement or the attic. August 14th, 1959. It was a stormy Friday afternoon. Ted was down in the basement cleaning his rifles. Pam was in the parlor working on a sunflower pattern that she was quite proud of. Richie was at a neighbor's house playing with the kids in the neighborhood. Beverly was sitting upstairs in the bedroom reading when she heard the boom of a needle hitting the record, followed by a record scratch. It made her jump out of bed. Then she heard music. The humming intro to Little Bitty Pretty Ones. Confused? She got up and made her way out of the bedroom, thinking maybe her brother came home and was fooling around with her records. 
When she opened the bedroom door, that's when she saw him. Straight across the hall, in the bathroom, low to the ground. Head couldn't have been higher than the doorknob. It was the glow of the Blue Jay nightlight behind her that made her take notice. The reflection was in his, its, eye. Peeking from around the door, head cocked over his right shoulder, huge black eyes. The gleam of blue light was right where the iris would have been. His head was oblong, and he had a grin that stretched the entire length of his face. Song still playing in the background, Thurston Harris was just getting to the part. Tell you a story, happened long time ago, little bitty pretty one, I've been watching you grow. As this man, this creature, rolled out his pencil-like fingers from his fist, they looked like skinny little garden snakes uncoiling and started gesturing for her to come. Beverly couldn't believe what she was seeing. Beverly let out a shriek of terror and slammed her bedroom door and collapsed up against it. It took her parents two hours to convince her to open it up again. Now, I can't say exactly what someone should do in this situation. How Ted and Pam should have reacted after hearing what Bev described to them. If my daughter told me this, halfway through the story, she would have been talking to a cloud of smoke in the shape of me. But Ted and Pam had a lot invested into this new house, this new town, this new life. What they decided to do was get the number for a specialist and have Beverly get a full exam. Maybe that bump on the head is worse than what they thought. But they had to wait until Monday. Places like that in 1959 usually didn't keep weekend hours. Saturday was uneventful for the rest of the family, but Bev spent that day in an absolute panic. Hiding it from her parents and not to worry them, Beverly was trying to figure out what to do if she saw him again. She couldn't go on living like this. This thing couldn't terrorize her for the rest of her life. She had to make sure this ends and ends soon. Sunday morning, she decided that she would put on a fake smile, force a sunny disposition, and put her family at ease at breakfast to make sure that they knew she would be okay when they left her alone to go to church. She wouldn't be up for it. She would promise to stay in the parlor and watch some TV while they were gone. It was during this time that she would sneak off downstairs to the basement and take one of her father's Winchester rifles and stash it up in her bedroom. If this thing came back tonight, she would be ready. She spent the rest of the day on edge, hoping her dad wouldn't go down into the basement and notice one of his rifles missing. The odds were in her favor, because Sundays were reserved for family time, and they would all usually spend the entire day together. At 1 a.m. that night, Beverly was awoken by a hoarse voice outside of her bedroom door. Little bitty pretty one, come and talk to me. Lovey dovey lovey one, come sit on my knee. Beverly jumped out of bed and grabbed the rifle from under it. She made her way to her bedroom door and slowly opened it. There he was. Now he was opening the door and stepping out of the bathroom into the hallway, humming as he stood up. He wasn't short at all. He was massive. His body was all legs and arms. All four limbs had to be at least six feet long. His body seemed to unfold as he came into the hallway. His shoulders were touching the nine-foot ceilings as he stood up, leaving his head cocked to the side in the same position she first saw it. Beverly just kept repeating, No, 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 no! Beverly screamed as she raised her rifle and aimed at center mass. Get the fuck away from me, you son of a bitch! This man... 
This creature kept coming, his pace quickening. Walking in jerky, flailing steps, he reached out for her, just as she closed her eyes and pulled the trigger. She was snapped back into the moment when she heard her mother scream and the sound of her brother Richie's lifeless body hitting the floor. Over the next few days, it was determined by the Rhode Island Institute of Mental Health that Beverly had schizophrenia. She was given a series of insulin coma treatments and eventually a frontal lobe lobotomy to try to cure the fits and hallucinations that she was having. Ted and Pam divorced shortly after the funeral for their son. Their relationship not able to hold up, essentially after losing both children. Pam visited Bev weekly up until 1988 when Beverly died. She choked to death on her own vomit following a seizure, which became a common occurrence after the lobotomy. Upon collecting her personal effects, Pam asked Beverly's roommate if her daughter had said anything the night she died. The roommate only hummed. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>